0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Herman Lopez, ProPublica's Dara Lind. And we were going to talk about the vaccine situation in the United States of America, which after, I don't know what, um, for a while, like a lot of people wanted vaccines and they couldn't get them, then everybody could get vaccines, but maybe some people didn't want them. And now I feel like we've entered a somewhat new state of confusion where there is talk about booster shots. And I feel like I've read these stories, but I'm still not 100% sure who is supposed to get them or if these directives are warranted or what's going on. you you know what you're talking about. What's the do I need more shots? Do we all need more shots?
2: So if you're to believe the Biden administration, all of us will need more shots eight months after. Um, And that's not to downplay what the Biden administration, like the science that they read to go to that conclusion. But the thing is that for now, the only people who are authorized by the FDA to get more booster shots are the immunocompromised. So if you look at the evidence, like the actual research, the, the thing that the Biden administration is saying is that there are some studies showing that the vaccine's efficacy is waning for any kind of disease. So meaning any symptoms, like if, if with a vaccine, before you were maybe 90% likely to avoid any kind of symptoms, now it's closer to 60%, maybe 80%. It really depends on which, which study you're looking at. And the Biden administration basically argued that, like, look, this is a sign that the vaccines are waning. And even though the studies have also found that the shots are holding up for Hospitalization and death, meaning they're still 95 plus percent effective for hospitalization and death. They're worried that eventually those numbers will start going down based on the fact that the other numbers are going down.
3: And when you say that the efficacy is waning, that's, you know, against whatever mix of variants are currently out there in the field, right? It's not that like, whoops, we missed in all of our testing, the fact that this that like the resistance to the original variant goes down over time, it's more that because they weren't tested against Delta, et cetera, They have less efficacy against them to the point that as Delta and other variants become more prevalent, that's what's going, you know, the efficacy is
2: going to decrease the studies are careful about this they are they say that they can't say if it's the variance if it's delta there's also some questions about like how you measure overall efficacy in a population based on age and like there was there's was an example out of israel that if you actually compare efficacy for the overall population it's much lower than if you just broke it down by age because of how young people are less likely to get Covid to begin with, and also less likely to be vaccinated, so that can skew the numbers a bit.
1: Right. So, so to to, to explain that a little bit, right? Like when the vaccines were scarce countries usually got older and and more generally vulnerable people vaccinated first, and then it kind of filtered down to middle-aged and younger people. So if you say, okay, vaccination in the U.S. started in December, and so now eight months after December, what do we have happening? And oh, people who got vaccinated in the more distant past are getting more breakthrough infections. So you could conclude, okay, the vaccines have faded. Or it could just be that the older population was vaccinated further in the past. And you would want to ideally get like a really big sample, do the statistical controls, you might want to like try and experiment find some of the younger people who were vaccinated early because they, you know, work in healthcare settings and specifically study them. So that's like an argument people have about this one. There was this Israeli study that was definitely showing more breakthrough infections among people who were vaccinated further back in the past. And then the contention is that if you reanalyze that, it's an age effect rather than a kind of distance effect so that impacts should we think of boosters as something we need to give to the most vulnerable people or are we do we need this like whole society lagged wave
2: right I, I would even go further it's not even just age necessarily although that's I think that's a big factor but also nursing homes like people in nursing homes are generally not going to be as healthy as even their same age cohorts. So, like, they might have more immune system issues. They might have more of other kinds of illnesses that, that could compound COVID. Just to say that, like, these are people who, regardless of a vaccine, they were more likely to get sick with, with COVID. And, and that's, that's normal with every vaccine. There have been, uh, like, actual cold outbreaks in nursing homes that have led to deaths. Like, just common cold. Like, when you get old, unfortunately, your immune system wanes. And that, that's why one of the arguments initially for everyone getting vaccinated, because it helps protect, on a population level, the older populations too. So anyway, it's just to say that, like, when you look at these studies, the Biden administration is says that they're just being cautious, that they're acting early, they don't want to let COVID get ahead of us. But they also, by effect of doing all of this, are kind of rushing ahead of the evidence a bit, and we really don't know if the vaccine is waning To begin with that much for any disease but we definitely don't know if it's waning at all for hospitalization and death which i think is what most people care about when they think about covid again their argument is that they're being cautious but the research to me at least is is pretty inconclusive and a lot of experts as a result have been pretty baffled and some even angry uh, at this decision
3: so when you say that that there's anger at them kind of jumping out of the science like let's talk a little bit about kind of what like why wouldn't you just want to be overly cautious right like it seems like this seems kind of similar to some of the other arguments we have around covid where like one side says yeah okay maybe it's not necessary but the cost of it is so extremely low that there's no reason not to because you want to maximize protection in the population like that is not actually the case here but you can kind of you know the problem appear the problem is that you don't have to acknowledge that cost when you're talking about you know getting everybody vaccinated right
2: yeah so the the big thing here is vaccine supply is limited around the world and by getting third shots across the country we're potentially going to be using up to what 300 million extra shots that could have gone to india could have gone to uh south africa i mean just name any country with low vaccination rates right now and that's a problem and like going to the example of india that's where the delta variant is believed to have originated so it's like there's a selfish interest there in us Not just giving, like taking all the shots for ourselves, but like giving it to other countries because variants can come from these other countries. And then if they prove to evade defense, if these studies, for example, are showing not vaccine waning, efficacy waning, but just the Delta variant is better at evading immunity, then like that, there's a reason to care about vaccinating these other countries. So that's where I think experts have tipped over from like a little baffled and annoyed with the decision to outright angry because they really care about this idea of like, vaccinating the world, not just because it's nice to protect other people and other countries, but because for our interests, it would be good to do that.
1: I want to put a pin in that and, and talk about it in, in the second segment and, and ask you a, a different question, which is the Delta variant is different from the original variant that the vaccines were developed against. Part of the I don't know, the joy, the promise of the mRNA technology is that it seemed like they designed this vaccine very, very quickly. And with the flu, we know that like each year you get a flu shot and they they like change what's in the vaccine based on what strains they think are coming around. So my assumption had been last winter that like if there was some future round of shots due to some future mutations or something, that we would actually be talking about different vaccines. I mean, I'm not a, not a vac- vaccinologist. Immunologist, probably. Yeah, wh- wh- whatever it is. But like that's not, that's not what's going on here. Right, like like why aren't we like building a Delta vaccine if we're talking about giving people extra vaccinations?
2: So the the pharmaceutical companies do say they are actually are working on different variant vaccines. We need more data out of those it's like the same slow vaccination development process that you would expect i mean i think that the process is slow just on these company sides too it's not even just necessarily government regulators it's not like pfizer has submitted an application and the government is just dragging its feet on it so i think that's one thing the other thing though is the vaccines have held up for deaths and hospitalizations against even with delta and obviously nobody wants to get sick at all it would be nice to avoid any kind of symptoms whatsoever but since those are the biggest problems with COVID, then the thinking is, well, we can skip this arduous process of like finding a new vaccine for each kind of variant as long as it's holding up with death and hospitalization. Another thing is that there's reason to believe that a booster shot would help against any disease, even with Delta. I don't want to get too into how the immune system works, but the, sh- the short explanation here is it- it's kind of like, antibodies are what's supposed to protect you from any kind of infection like to prevent any kind of infection from happening in the first place and then beyond that there are t cells and b cells in your immune system that kick in and protect you from death and hospitalization so if that's true that's how uh, some experts have described this to me, then getting another shot does boost your antibodies, so that would protect you from getting any kind of infection to begin with. That's the argument that Fauci actually on the White House call walked through when arguing for a third booster shot is like, look, this will give you a temporary boost in your antibodies, which we do know wane over time, and that will protect people from getting infected at all, it'll stop people from spreading the disease, and that's good for, for America.
1: So my related question about that is, I feel like we've been a little bit all over the map in terms of, like, acquired immunity from past infection. But, you know, with a lot of people getting Delta, it seems like, you know, a lot of younger people getting Delta and not necessarily being in the hospital, I mean, people going to the hospital and then coming out, people who have been vaccinated getting mildly sick, but, you know, not not too seriously. Does that create extra immune robustness? Like, should we expect this cycle to, like, drive down? Because to me, that's that's like a question that I have about the logic of these boosters is like what is the policy aim we're aiming for because if acquired immunity is going to also exist then people getting moderate illness just doesn't seem that kind of alarming to me but i don't i don't really understand what like the experts think about this
2: yeah the thing is is that when experts say mild illness one thing i have found is that that is not pleasant like I think most people I think media articles have generally done a bad job of describing this. They say like mild illness means the sniffles, but like when the FDA or CDC say that they mean like illness that knocks you down for a week, you have a fever and all of that. So it's like they they mean it doesn't send you to the hospital. That's mild to them. So that's one thing. I mean, people don't want to live through that. But I think in general you are right that like and I have heard this theory described before that maybe every once in a while Humanity just has to be exposed to like a new round of the flu or coronavirus. And like over time, like you're first exposed to this as a kid. It's mild because you're a child. You have a better immune system. So you start building immunity there. And then you're repeatedly exposed to a coronavirus over time. And by the time you're an adult, when it would be dangerous, it ends up not being that dangerous for you because you have all that pre-built immunity. And there's actually a theory that one of the like a late 19th century pandemic Normally, it's described as a flu, but some scientists are now asking, "Was that actually a coronavirus? One of the ones that's now a, a common cold?" And like, that's a credible theory. I mean, we we don't really have a way of verifying that since we don't exactly have like uh, lab samples of a late 19th century flu or coronavirus pandemic laying around. But it is it is to say that this idea, at least, that like, look, you're going to get vaccinated. Hopefully, you, you get your, both your shots if you're getting the mRNA vaccine, and then you're repeatedly exposed to the virus. If it turns out you get a mild illness, your body does build up a little more immunity through that process. And over time, I mean, you can expect the coronavirus to just naturally fade away because all the adults will be vaccinated. The older people will be vaccinated. The kids getting, will be getting exposed to COVID if it's endemic over time, and they'll be building immunity that way. And By the time they're adults, it just won't be as big of a problem anymore.
1: This is the 1898 so-called Russian flu pandemic that Herman was talking about.
3: Next time we fire up the weeds time machine, we got to pick up some pathogens on the way back.
1: <laughs> I, I just, I, I just to to note for reference that the alternate theory of this, um, it's not just something people cooked up like over the past year. It comes back to the, the the SARS outbreak in the early 21st century, and there was some kind of genomic work that was done on it. I think potentially like I I actually read there was there was work done on the Antonine Plague that happened in ancient Rome, which people had long sort of wondered what it was actually. And they were able to, to dig up bodies and like do genetics testing and verify that that was Yersinia pestis, it was the same, which, you know, didn't used to be known. So it's possible that historic pandemic researchers uh, will crack this open. And, you know, and it's an example of the kind of thing where it used to be a, a historic curiosity, like what was this disease in 1898? But now it would be good to know, because if it's true that that was the ancestor of a currently harmless common cold virus, you know, that sort of does tell us something about today. Let's take a break and let's talk about vaccinating the world.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to
4: learn more and
0: support their cause.
4: B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com dot com slash weeds.
1: A putative concern. That I keep hearing kicked around. And this originally came, I think, when we were talking about just opening the vaccine up to older teenagers. I heard some public health people saying that they thought that was unethical, right? To be vaccinating American 16 year olds at a time when, you know, people in Brazil were desperate for shots. And so I think anytime you see you know, expansion, right? I mean, we are hoping to vaccinate our six year old sometime soon. And I think a lot of the uh college educated moms of Blue America are are eager to have their little kids be vaccinated. And, you know, there's gonna be right wingers saying, Oh, this is pointless, da 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 da. But there's also gonna be left wing. Cosmopolitan people saying, look, the value of that vaccine to my six year old is so low compared to what it could be for somebody in a developing country. And it's really, it's really wrong to do it. And I think that's the subtext, honestly, of some of the foot dragging around the vaccine approval is that, you know, the regulators don't believe that the benefits of vaccinating young children are especially high. But what's always a little hazy to me is like, what is the mechanism through which Americans not using shots leads to Indians getting the shots? Because I've just been in rural Texas for a month and there's like vaccines, you know, on every shelf. Uh, in Kerville, um, some of them are being used, some of them are not being used, but like the ones that aren't being used are as far as I can tell, are not being emergency airlifted to Guatemala. Um, they're just expiring. And so like I would tell somebody there in total good conscience, like, you should get vaccinated. Like if you're uh 13 and you don't think you're at high, it's like you should get vaccinated. It's not like true that you are selflessly providing vaccines uh, to the rest of the world by not using them. But how does that like how does that play out? Like how do poor countries get vaccinated?
2: So the idea is essentially that like, look, the Biden administration is filling out orders. They're making more orders for vaccines as we speak, like constantly, even once once the, the processing to be going well, and we believe to have enough supply for the whole country. The Biden administration is just constantly ordering vaccines. So one way that the not doing third shots might help is the Biden administration may just decide it doesn't have to place as many orders or simply like once the vaccines are at the CVS, I do not think that anybody is going to go in there, take those doses back and then ship them to other countries. I mean, if nothing else, the optics of that would be absolutely disastrous for just about anybody doing that. But also just technically it would be unfeasible. There would be so many problems with it. you don't know how long those vaccines were there if they were properly stored, that kind of thing. But the idea there might be that, like, look, the Biden administration already has these extra doses, but they're in federal warehouses. Before they make the decision to actually send them to the local CVS, they could decide, hey, let's send them to uh, one of these other countries and send them to Latin America and, and so forth. And they actually have been sending a lot of the extra doses that, that they've piled up to other countries. Not enough by any means. Like, we still have hundreds of millions of vaccines just sitting around, um, and it's not even clear that Americans are going to take, take them up. It is just to say that, like, that's the avenue there. It's like it's not a very immediate process, but in in the long term, you could start seeing more vaccines trickle to other places if the Biden administration deems that American demand just isn't going to be there.
3: So if we're talking about eight months out, it does seem that, you know, the real like uptake of vaccination because of eligibility for vaccination isn't, you know, we're not necessarily looking at tens of millions of people needing to get booster shots like tomorrow, so is there i mean what is the timeline between the biden administration you know it, it seems like the easy answer here would be like order a bunch as a precautionary measure and like if it turns out that the science at the time that they're ready says that you know it's not as helpful to have a booster for everybody then just give them to other countries at that point like what is the kind of lag time between uh, between ordering these and for that matter like Is there a way to expand capacity from this point so that given that it does look like vaccine production is going to need to proceed for a while since the world is not immunized yet that, you know, we could actually not have to trade off between Americans getting third shots and the rest of the world getting first and seconds?
2: Well, generally how the procurement process has worked is that the federal government has been sending them out on like a weekly basis. They tell states and cities what they're going to get on a weekly basis. So conceivably, the week before this plan goes ahead, they could just be like, never mind. Uh, We're not going to do this anymore. And actually, there's a real mechanism where this could happen because the Biden administration said – that they're going to wait for the FDA and ACIP's approval, the the commission that generally advises on vaccines at the CDC, that they're going to wait for the approval. If the FDA and ACIP look at this and say, eh, we don't think the evidence is there, we're not as convinced as you are, we're not going to do this, the Biden administration could be caught in a position where they're like, oh, crap, we shouldn't do this, we're not going to do this. So conceivably, that could happen the week before. There's also a question of, like, look, because there are so many vaccine doses already sitting around, do they even have to send extra doses to a bunch of places? I seriously doubt that Mississippi needs like extra shots for third doses. I'm I'm pretty sure that they have enough at CVS shelves already to staff any demand for third shots. I hope that's wrong because that would mean people are getting their vaccines, but I, that's my sense. May, but maybe New York would need more doses, maybe California would need more doses. The blue states generally have more demand. But it is just to say that like they could cut this short the week before it happens if if the process works as it did before.
3: Although this does kind of get to what I think is like another normative question that is secondary on in utilitarian terms to the vaccinate the world question but like to what extent is investing in a third booster shot strategy or investing even more so investing in a vaccinate the world strategy giving up on the idea that we can get to herd immunity on one and two and like I think that that's something that you know we really are beginning to see anecdotal reports of like healthcare workers with you know, what's called moral fatigue, a lot of frustration among people who have been vaccinated at those who are not, and you know, who are unwilling to be vaccinated yet. And I think that that is in tension with the, you know, strong epidemiological imperative that we were talking about in the first segment, that like, it is very important for low risk people to get vaccinated because the vaccines don't you know, aren't going to be as effective for as long in more vulnerable people. So I think that that's kind of a tension that we're going to see. Well, it would be excellent if that tension were like being openly discussed. But I think it's something that's running under the discussion of vaccine distribution is this strategic question of like, when are we willing to say if ever? Well, if you haven't gotten the shot, you're, you know, out of luck.
1: Well, and I also think there's a there's a tension within the um, high minded public health community where there's one strand that wants to say, look, we should be prioritizing global vaccine need. And there's another strand that wants to be emphasizing the sort of continued need for for caution, right? We had uh, the popular Twitter personality Epi Ellie uh, the other day, you know, saying that not getting COVID should be the top thing on our Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you know, mandatory public education is only a century old. And there's like there's some insight to both of these things, right? Like kids are not at high risk of COVID, but they're not at Zero risk. One thing you could say, right, is be like, eh, look, like, we give booster shots to people in nursing homes. Uh, most of the people who perceive themselves to be vulnerable are vaccinated. We don't really need a third round of shots for middle-aged Americans. We don't necessarily need shots for little kids. We should be making sure that elderly and vulnerable people all around the world uh, have their medicine. But that, to me, argues for a telling people to relax approach to domestic public health, right? Alternatively, you can have the push, which I think we see I, I going back from Red America to Blue America, I can see like the masks are back on in D.C., the movie theaters are not open, parents are wringing their hands about the situation in the schools, And if you're going to try to tell people that, like, you can't resume or you shouldn't resume ordinary daily life until the virus is somehow eradicated, like, then I feel like you do have to go all in on COVID, right? It's like a decision, a social decision needs to be made as to, like, whether or not we shrug off the existence of moderate breakthrough infections, Because, you know, if we do, then that's fine. We can say, well, we should be prioritizing vaccinations for for people in greatest need. But like, if we don't, then it's it's tough for me because I mean, this is this is me and Joe Biden being America firsters. But like, I do think like the American government's policymaking has to keep America sort of first in mind when thinking about these kind of things. We are not preventing other countries from inventing vaccines if they would like to. And it would be interesting to me, though, to know more about, like, can we just make more doses of vaccine? Like, that seems like that would be that would be nice. Like if you had to spend a billion dollars, $2 billion, $20 billion. Um, Like, I'm I'm not exactly sure at what point I would say that's too much money to spend to, like, triple world output of mRNA vaccines. But, like, I would give the thumbs up to a very high number there. But I don't quite, like, see that in the policy discussion.
2: I think, to your point, I think the idea that the Biden administration, because the thing is, it's not just the U.S. dealing with this third shot thing right now. Other countries are going through this right now where they're actually considering making recommendations and all of that for third shots. So I think the idea that the Biden administration would just sit around as like internationally third shots are becoming a thing and just to say, eh, we're, we're not going to make talk about this. We're not going to want it. it. It sounds ridiculous to me. And it sounds, frankly, like like it would be politically disastrous for them. Because Israel moved
1: first here,
2: right? Right, ex- exactly. So I think that's the thing. Th- the one thing, though, that does bother me about all this is I'm on the camp of, like, eventually we need to accept some risk of COVID. So if that's the case, if we have to accept some risk of COVID, then, like, should mild disease bother us that much? And, like, that's, a, like you said, Matt, that's a calculation. But I worry that, like... The Biden administration has botched the messaging on vaccines so much in the past few weeks by essentially saying, like, it started with the, the recommendation that you should mask up again, right? And then with this third shot news, and then they released that the Provincetown study too, that found vaccinated people were getting infected. And I worry that as like, you look at the past few weeks, you're sending the message to people that like, these vaccines aren't working, not just for any disease, but for death and hospitalization too. And that's where I start getting a little... A little worried about what's going on here and and the potential consequences for vaccine uptake
3: yeah i mean it's not like you know it, it is we're we are breaking no new ground on this podcaster generally by pointing out that this has been a continual lesson in public health communications and like specifically in communicating you know uncertainty which the new york times had like a a good explainer on this recently that we'll put in show notes but like if you imagine a world where the amount of hedging that is not not maybe the amount of hedging applied to like scientific journal articles, but certainly, you know, an amount of hedging that's more common when scientists are talking to each other was evinced in the initial recommendations on covid. Yes, uptake on those initial recommendations would have been lower, but you wouldn't have had a kind of trust destruction effect, which I think is what a lot of people worry has happened so far with like the messaging having changed so much and gotten so muddied that at this point, the credibility of the messengers is lower than they were in March 2020. And I think that that's like good to note. It does seem somewhat like, you know, that isn't going to get fixed immediately. And it plays into a bigger question that I think Matt's earlier point was also getting into, which is that we really have hit a point in the pandemic where a lot of the discussion about individual behavior is blind to the fact that you can't unilaterally change other people's risk aversion and it would be nice if there were a more explicit conversation about like to what extent are we trying to change other people's risk aversion by educating them by forcing lockdowns etc and to what extent are we just going to accept that like it's on people who are more cautious to accept a certain amount of risk from people who are less cautious. And like that is an uncomfortable conversation to have because it implies that not everyone agrees with you. Um, but, it, you know, it, it would be nice to kind of have that out because otherwise we're in a world where, you know, if you are already vaccinated... Your choices are either to, you know, your your stances are either well, I'm already vaccinated, like it's not my fault that other people are, you know, morally inferior to me, or to say I am going to bang my head against a wall to convince to try to, you know, to try to say that everyone should be vaccinated, whether or not I actually have any influence on whether people do get vaccinated or not. But the, you know, the thing about increasing global vaccine production, Matt, is like. There's another alternative here, which is that the U.S. could release the intellectual property claims that Pfizer and Moderna have on the mRNA vaccines, which has been, you know, a policy that's been mooted in the past that the Biden administration has rejected so far, you know, that like I'm seeing YouTube ads for don't give our vaccine technology to countries that want to do us harm, which implies that at least its opponents think it's still a live issue. To what extent, Herman, would doing that be a short-term solution given that i guess you'd also have to expand production capacity in those countries and like is that something that seems more logical now that we're talking about a need for more supply than we might have anticipated
2: i think there actually have been some moves in the direction of doing that but the question for me has always been like is that really a bottleneck or is it just that like pfizer and moderna they they have a lot of money here and they want to get the vaccines to out to as many people as possible. It's not like they wouldn't love to have customers in a country of 1 billion people, right? Like th- they would they would definitely love that. The the thing is from what I've read about this is it's just really difficult to make these vaccines. Like it requires a very specialized process down basically every part of the supply chain. that's not to say it couldn't be done. It should have been done. And in fact, I bet if we started really more seriously taking the global vaccine production thing like months ago, a year ago, we would be in a better position today.
1: Yeah, so I I really want to want to echo that because I I know a lot about intellectual property law and not that much about vaccine manufacturing, but like when you have an IP bottleneck, you get the situation. This was the situation around HIV medication in the 90s, which was that there was no problem like quantitatively getting the doses of AZT, but they were expensive. And so if you were in a rich country, you could just get the doses. But if you were in a poor country, unless you personally were rich, you couldn't because they were too expensive. And that's a classic intellectual property issue, right? The monopolist is constraining production to maintain a high price point. And it was eventually resolved through the IP mechanism. They didn't really release the patents, but they kind of like created a a secondary marketplace where they undercut themselves at low cost. And, you know, it was good. I mean, a lot of lives were saved, ultimately, through Clinton Foundation and George W. Bush's PEPFAR and stuff like that. That's not really what we have here. Like the vaccines, the unit cost of these vaccines is not high. It's maybe too high for them poorest countries on earth. But a lot of middle income countries that could easily afford $20 a shot uh, for people just don't have them, right? Because the number of vaccines doesn't exist. And Pfizer, they're not like refusing, they're selling at a profit, right? Like, But this is all that they can make. And what we don't have a policy focus on is like, why is it all that they can make exactly? Medecins um, Sans Frontières, uh put out uh, a release uh, just yesterday in which they're like, they're trying to move beyond the intellectual property talking point. They're saying that, that they want, they're calling on Pfizer and BioNTech to share COVID-19 vaccine know-how, which is to say to like actually like ship people to South Africa to work with South African companies that already make vaccines and like teach them how to do it. And, you know, they say they they point out that Moderna is not a company like is a startup, essentially, right? Like this is not a company that like has a global supply chain and big factories everywhere. And they have done this by working with you know, pharmaceutical companies to manufacture vaccines, and they are sort of suggesting that this could be done on a larger scale in developing countries. But obviously, like, it can't be that it like never occurred to Moderna, like, well, maybe you can open some new factories, right? I feel like we have not had from the government or journalists, but like, really from the government, like, Real feet to the fire, like, what's up here, guys, kind of stuff. Like, why don't you do this? Why do you think that the amount you're producing now is profitable, but that the investments you would need to make to increase it dramatically – wouldn't be profitable. And like I can think of a lot of reasons. Like Whenever you ask this on Twitter, people come up with s- speculation that makes a certain amount of sense. But like I want to hear it from the CEO. And you know the answer could be, OK, to increase uh, production, we would need to wipe out the entire population of elephants worldwide. And we'd say, uh, I don't know about that. Um, but it could just be, well, we would need to raise the unit cost to $45 a dose, and we don't want you to yell at us about price gouging. And then we should think about it and be like, well, would raising the unit cost to $45 a dose, like, would that be so bad? I mean, it, it depends, right? But, like, maybe we shouldn't yell at them about price gouging. I mean, who, who knows? Maybe they need more, like, glass to be diverted from something else. They need, like, a federal order saying, you know, we're not going to make any new TVs uh, for some period of time. I mean, you know, who knows, right? But, like, that was, like, wartime mobilization. Right. Is you identify actually what are the bottlenecks and then you try to resolve them instead of just kind of saying, like, well, we are where we are and we have to deal with this scarcity. And it's really frustrating to me. Like we knew for a long time that we would eventually want billions of people to get vaccines and that you don't normally make $2 of something per year because, you know, the problem, I mean, one obvious risk for the companies is like, say you could make a huge investment and deliver 12 billion doses over the next three months. Well, then what do you do in the three months after that, right? Like now you have this factory that has no purpose, whereas rolling them out at a slower pace for a longer period of time is more economical. But like if as a society, we don't want them to do that, like we need to we need to come up with an actual answer.
2: Just to emphasize what you said, too, is like it's not even just that middle income countries are struggling with getting doses right now, like it's,
1: Australia has no doses,
2: yes, exactly Australia, New Zealand, like you can think of a bunch of really wealthy countries that definitely want vaccines, they've definitely taken covid seriously. And yet they can't get them. That suggests that it it has to be like a genuine supply issue, not just not just IP or like these countries are ready to throw money at these companies and they just aren't able to because there aren't enough shots laying around.
1: And I mean, it's worth emphasizing also the the physical location matters, right? There was some like discourse early in this pandemic about like the quality of the rollout in various different countries. The thing about the United States is that we have a vaccine manufacturing industry, whereas Canada doesn't. So at a certain point, the Biden administration was just not allowing any exports of doses. And so the Canadians were sitting there and they're like, oh, we'd like some doses. But in the normal course of events, like all of Canada's vaccines come from the United States. So they just couldn't get any until we let the companies start sort of selling them up there. So the US and the EU produce vaccines. India traditionally has a vaccine manufacturing industry, but they don't have the mRNA kind of facilities there. So one thing that's dicey about it, right, it's it's sort of convenient for the Biden administration for such a large share of the world's vaccines to be made here, because they can then control where they go. Right. So even if we do global vaccinations, right, if Biden places these huge orders and then he says you have to fill our orders first, that's Defense Production Act, even if he's being globally minded about it and the vaccines go worldwide, that's a foreign policy tool of the United States of America. Another way to do it would be like a high minded, equitable way. So every country gets it evenly. And a third way would be an open market right? So Pfizer says, hey, out of Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, like rich countries that are short on vaccines, like who wants to pay us most for it, right? And that maybe ends up with New Zealand paying $1,000 a shot and, you know, everybody at Pfizer getting getting big bonuses. But that might be a bad look, right? On the other hand, if the US controls the distribution of global vaccine supply, then it's like, well, maybe if Iran wants any shots, like, they have to make big concessions to us on their missile program, right? Which is like, that's a kind of a uh, hard-ass move.
3: I mean, that almost certainly would have been what a second term of a Trump administration would be doing, and actually was. Like, it, it is it is what they were doing with ventilators, for example.
1: And I mean, I, I think it's it's not not what the Biden administration is doing. I mean, this is your area. But it, it seems to me that, like, vaccine supply to Mesoamerica is roped in with immigration policy concerns in a way.
3: They certainly officially exist that it is insist that it is not, but the timing has been suggestive on a couple of counts.
1: Oh, right. Yes. That's not what they're doing. But like, it kind of seems like it's what they're doing, right?
3: Yeah, there there are bigger questions here about how you balance various objectives in foreign policy that we should not get into, but it is worth thinking about. Going back to Herman's very first point that there is a selfish argument for vaccinating the world because if you slow the spread of COVID, you can slow its evolution. By the same token, there is a selfish argument for being the global benefactor that provides everybody with the vaccines, one aspect of which is that it's easier to get other countries to do what you want them to do in unrelated policy areas.
2: I mean, it's just one more thing I wanted to emphasize here is that matt mentioned that you know being america first and i agree that politically bond it would be very disastrous if like bond is just like uh, not talking about third shots while every other country in the world is but like from an america first standpoint there is at some point a calculation that has to be made like how much do we want to prevent covid from mutating turning into another variant and like how much do we want to commit to vaccinating the rest of the world from that perspective and we have a recent example for this the reason that we did not see ebola in the u.s in a big way back when that was going on in 2014 or 2016 was because the obama administration sent a lot of people to west africa to make sure that it the problem got taken care of there and like that's great americans it's an invisible benefit that americans got from the obama administration doing that And it is kind of like what we would like to see with COVID and vaccines.
1: It's worth recalling, though, that the Obama administration's handling of Ebola, which was flawless on the merits, completely solved the problem, led to no American deaths, was a huge political fiasco for them. Like, he suffered. Yeah,
3: and arguably led to them, led led to, yeah, they they arguably lost more seats than they would have in 2014 because of that.
1: I mean, it's the reason there's a Republican majority on the Supreme Court. Like, it was much more damaging to Obama than Trump's handling of COVID was to him and like i think it's clear from so many things that joe biden does that like he is very influenced by having been you know had a, a co-pilot's eye view of everything that happened during barack obama's presidency and you know you see you see the marks of that around a lot of the big decisions that they are making and you know that whole Ebola thing was like the peak of like chill guy obama like vulcan rationalist and from a hard-nosed political standpoint like it really didn't work
2: yeah i mean i agree that's the difficulty here is like this is based the fact that i have to spend so much time explaining how this is a selfish thing that america can do suggests that it would be very difficult to message politically so but i think To some extent, I I wish people were finding better ways to make this argument and actually getting it out to people. I don't think it would ever seep through. I think in the end, the Biden administration is always going to be in a position where it has to prioritize getting third shots, fourth shots, whatever it might be. But it is it is just to say, at least on the merits, it makes sense.
3: Herman wants to build a domestic political
1: constituency for cosmopolitanism, not not for the first or the last time. (laughs) He's back back to the Vulcan era. Okay, let's let's take another break. Let's talk about economic history. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding
4: the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought.
1: The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This
4: spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to Hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's hydro com code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS.
1: All right. Today's paper, new in AER, is The Intergenerational Effects of a Large Wealth Shock, White Southerners After the Civil War. This is by two of uh, the Internet's greatest economic historians, Leah and Catherine Erickson, along with a Danish fellow named Philip Ager, whose work I am less familiar with. Um, they are all co-authoring. And so they ask an interesting question, which is that we know that enslaved people was a major source of wealth in the antebellum South in the United States. We know that that wealth went away uh, in a very short span of time as a result of a war. And it's so obvious when you think about it that, you know, any individual rich white Southern family, the extent to which their wealth was bound up in enslaved people is going to vary a little bit you know, eccentrically, right? So you can see if you were more invested in enslaved people, uh, you will have lost more as a result of the war. And what happens next? Uh, And so they find that the sons of people who had a lot of slave wealth were worse off than, you know, comparably situated sons, but that into the next generation, uh, their grandsons have completely converged uh, by 1940. It's like a particularly horrific sort of form of wealth that we're talking about. And it's interesting for that reason, but it also, it is at least suggestive of just some kind of general things about inequality and the inheritance of inequality over time in which the peculiar nature of the wealth in question like gives us an instrument, but is not necessarily central to understanding the outcomes.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that because there's a new mass understanding to a certain extent of the reconstruction and post-reconstruction periods. You know, I definitely, at least, and I suspect that many listeners may have as well went into this thinking, okay, this is going to just demonstrate that sharecropping was as profitable to white southern landowners as, you know, as chattel slavery had been and like that's not really the case the most persuasive argument they offer against that hypothesis is that like the largest landholders were the slowest to recover indicating that like it wasn't you know sharecropping wasn't like the way up and out of things and that urban sons and grandsons of slaveholding families recovered you know just as quickly if not more quickly than than rural ones but you know what they what they kind of run through is that there was still enough wealth, even in its diminished capacity, for slaveholding families to retain social capital by marrying each other to get credit for their newly non-people owning, you know, business schemes and to get good positions. They quote another historian saying that like the new men of the South weren't actually, they were new in their occupations, but they were the same surnames, uh, which is a decent reflection of like what the post-Reconstruction South looked like. And as always, when we're talking about this period, the counterfactual is what would have happened if federal troops hadn't withdrawn in 1877. And if the reconstruction political order had remained, you know, these authors test to see if connections to reconstruction politicians helped families regain their wealth back. And it doesn't appear that they did. But that's just a reflection of the fact that reconstruction wasn't very long and was strongly resisted. And the minute that it ended, the old political order took power again.
2: One thing I found interesting in this paper, it was almost kind of like a, a diss of these families, too, is like it emphasized that this was not meritocratic necessarily in the sense that like entrepreneurship and skill were like they tried measuring for these variables to see if like, you know, maybe these wealthy families were just better entrepreneurs because they had experience in these markets before and so on and so forth. And the researchers just concluded, no. That's not the case. It really did seem to be like these social ties, which, I mean, that's a skill in its own right, building social networks, blah, 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 as anybody who's been to a career workshop can attest to. But it is just to say that, like, at least on the like traditional, what I would consider meritocratic perspective, these families did not get back to their wealthy status because they were just better business people. It's because of something else.
3: You know, what the wildest thing about this to me is like, when we're talking about the old families of the old South. We're not just talking about like career level networking, right? We're talking about this like extremely rigid class structure with elaborate manners and, you know, an entire custom of gentility. And it's typical to look at that as evidence of the South's relative backwardness at the time of the Civil War, that like while the North was industrializing, the South was held back by this idea of an agrarian elite supported by the backbreaking labor of, you know, millions of human beings. But what this is demonstrating is that that actually was a decent survival mechanism for them after the destruction of that order, that because they had such a rigid sense of class identity, they were able to kind of regroup and huddle their resources rather than allow them to be taken by others.
1: Yes. Although I I, I do think it's worth emphasizing that if you compare, I mean, this is comparing Southerners to each other, right? But that like the South as a whole relative to the North becomes Poorer through the, and in effect, the definancialization of owning people. It's still an unsuccessful development model, but they kind of hoard the smaller pie for themselves. Something that's a little, it's in the paper, but that they, I, I think, downplay a little bit slightly is the engagement with a different literature on this that's associated with Gregory Clark. Um, he studies intergenerational wealth mobility across very 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 long time horizons and also across certain shocks. And so he has a similar finding to this about um, the Maoist revolution in China, right? Which is a kind of thing where you might think, okay, like a lot, a lot happened in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, And so obviously the Chinese elite that emerges in the 1980s should have been very different from the Chinese elite of 70 years ago. And he finds that that's not the case, that the elite families from late imperial China are very overrepresented in the elite families of communist China. So he says that this is probably a genetic relationship uh, because the idea of continuity across that disruption is so sort of facially implausible. They attempt to look at a version of this at sort of extended family relationships uh, by tracking last names, And they indicate that they don't find that, right? That the sort of like distant relatives of the elites are not necessarily doing better um, because they are presumably still, you know, genetically related, but not through these social ties. Um, So, you know, and, and in this case, the idea of a political continuity It, like, is quite plausible, right, that, like, if you were a big shot before the war, even if you lost a lot of money, you're still a big shot person. We know that the prior political regime reasserted itself very, very quickly.
3: There certainly wasn't, as there was in the case of Maoist China, you know, a, like, whole of government and whole of society effort to invert the social order and to paint the people at the top as villains to the contrary. The myth of the noble South was like an immediate thing. So they could still retain a certain amount of political and social capital, one assumes, even through
1: Reconstruction, frankly. Right. So what what I'd love to see here is like a researcher swap where, you know, the people kind of test this in the other countries, right? People who sort of have different outcomes that they're interested in cuz like maybe there was more political continuity than you would think uh across the Chinese revolution I mean I don't really know I think in general the economic historians who do this work are not like actually specialists in the microdynamics of Chinese politics
3: though shout out to these researchers for doing a really good job of grounding this in like localized qualitative research
1: right no, no, no. Right. I mean, this paper, which is done like primarily by Americans about the United States with a lot of engagement with people. I mean, the Civil War is a very heavily studied period in American history. Like people know a lot about it. And so they can have this very sort of textured, detailed kind of thing about it. It's interesting because in some ways, the headline finding of persistence is less surprising than you might think. We have a lot of these persistence studies, uh, but there's an advance on at least what the people who did those other ones say is going on.
2: Just to apply this to contemporary policymaking a bit, one thing I I was – thank you when reading this is like, I think in general, people overlook the importance of other things besides wealth for determining class, and we see this in policy all the time. Um, I mean – one example of this, is it's not totally related, but it's, like, the research on, like, whether wealthy people flee states when taxes are raised has found that, like, generally they don't because they have families in those states. And while everybody would love more money, it's also nice to be with your family and friends who you've known all your life and that sort of thing. And it's just, like, I think for me this shows, like, how durable class can be in a sense, but also just, uh, like, if you, if you really want to solve inequality – in some ways, you have to be more persistent about going at it, but also just looking at things maybe other than money to, to some degree to see what's, what's going on here. What are the disadvantages that the lower-income people actually face besides not having accumulated all this wealth in past generations?
3: I love it. Herman, you're an official Weed's host for two weeks, and you're already banging on about the importance of social capital. Matt and I have done our jobs.
1: It's lovely. It's lovely. The thing about this paper, Right. Is that the the wealth that the wealth holders in question had was like so clearly something that should have been confiscated from them that it means there isn't really like a difficult policy question about like, what are we trying to do here? Right. Like we're like we're liberating people from bondage. I don't know.
3: I mean, historically, that was not the case. Right. Like all of the pre-war and even into the middle of like all of the pre-emancipation proclamation like, emancipations were compensated by the
1: government. That is true. No, yes. If you could if you could take this information back in time to the 1850s, uh, you possibly could have convinced slave owners that they should not fight a war over this, that it actually wasn't as big a deal as they thought it was. I don't know, though. I mean, there's a complicated ideological synthesis. But like today, we have a lot of political arguments about vast fortunes that just consist of like shares of stock. Right. Without anybody claiming that it's like morally illegitimate per se for like a human being to own shares of stock in publicly traded companies, there's a sense that the incredible piles of shares of stock that some wealthy individuals own is like a really big problem. And we should maybe have a wealth tax or some other means of dissipating that fortune. And that poses the question of like, what exactly are you hoping to accomplish through that kind of dissipation and, you know, some considerable evidence that for one reason or another, like taking away the money per se does not stop the children of an elite class from being substantially advantaged uh, over others, right? That, you know, if there's something, if there's some good reason to do the tax, like that might be a good thing to do anyway. Uh, But there is a popular view, I think, and that's super popular but a non-trivial number of people that like the wealth per se needs to be kind of obliterated that I think what we're seeing here is that obliterating like entrenched privilege is much more difficult than that and would possibly require like totally eliminating like family dynamics in some kind of unthinkable way. I mean like Plato says you should do that and parents should not raise their children but I feel like that's a kind of extreme take that most people don't embrace
3: yeah although it is kind of a logical conclusion from you know one of the other findings on class that's become that's gotten a certain amount of currency recently which is opportunity hoarding right like if the problem of privilege is opportunity hoarding you know then something needs to happen to prevent those opportunities from being hoardable which is to say either you increase everyone else's opportunities to such a point that the elite can't event invent any new ones or you restrict elite opportunities to control opportunity among themselves.
2: I think this also gets at one thing that I've always struggled with, with like debates about inequality is um, some people just seem to want to make very rich people poorer, and that would solve inequality. And you actually see this in this paper in that like, obviously I'm not sad for these slaveholding families that they lost all this wealth. Like it is, they shouldn't have had it to begin with, but it is like inequality improves. Like they're the, the by the measures of the study, Because the rich families get poor. But is that really what you want in this situation? Or would you rather have, like, elevated the lower-income people? Well,
1: let's make that more precise. In this case, you did elevate the worst off people because they weren't enslaved anymore, right? So that's good. But if you had not freed the slaves, if you had instead burned down all the plantation mansions, right? Like, that would have reduced inequality, but it wouldn't have helped anybody.
2: Well, I, I mean, one way you can look at this is the low-income white people of the South, who they just stayed as poor as they had been before the war. So it is just, it is just to drive home that that point. That like, is is the goal here to actually just make rich people poor, or to raise up the bottom and? What is more productive? Because we could essentially cure inequality if we wanted by just taking every rich person's money away and making everyone make ten thousand dollars a year. I don't think that's what we want ultimately out of our society. And it is—it's just to speak that like, if you want to do that though, you have to start thinking about like the opportunity issue here. Like, it's not just pre-existing wealth; it is the chance to like find a job to begin with to have social ties social networking all of that stuff that wealthy people benefit from in some cases taking it for granted and that low-income people just never had access to
3: which is to say we cannot in fact fix wealth inequality just by giving everyone a flat income with no variance
1: all right thanks a lot to our sponsors uh thanks as always to our producer Ned smith savadoff and the weeds will be back on friday